You can always close your eyes, but you can't close your ears. Hay una cuestión de, yo, yo diría como es de amor a la tierra, ¿no? Es decir que somos parte de las raíces de, 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 de donde nacemos, ¿verdad? Hello and welcome to Disquiet on the Western Front, Voices from the Forest Resistance. This is Chad Swimmer speaking to you from the unceded land of the Northern Pomo and Coast Yuki peoples. Our theme song comes from Spain, Madre Tierra, by Macaco. Hola, buenos dias, bonjour, salam, and shalom. Today, I'm excited to bring you an extended and deep conversation with Pat and Applesauce, two forest defenders in so-called Humboldt County who have been holding down a tree sit for over a year and a half on stolen land claimed by Green Diamond Resource Company. We will touch on subjects as varied as the philosophy of environmentalism, what law enforcement looks like from 100 feet in the sky, and how to create a safe space for queer activism. We will also include the Pledge Drive version of the second grade science report, where we will hear from Chipmunk and a real-life paleontologist about dinosaurs and redwoods. Mejor aprender que corra la voz y quitas conseguir. Bombeando tierra madre dice, bombeando tierra madre te dice basta. Bombeando, bombeando tierra madre escuche. Bombeando tierra madre dice ponte en pie. Bombeando ponte en pie. Bombeando tierra madre dice ponte en pie. Mírame. Get ready for a conversation to cool a planet on fire. Pat. Applesauce, how are you? Doing great. It's a lovely sunny day today. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about your surroundings? Yeah, we're about 100 feet up in a coast redwood tree. Cold night last night? Yeah, it got a little colder after some rain, so we were extra bundled up. What do you look out on? We're right on the edge of a creek, so there's a big opening kind of to the south of us. We can see a lot of lovely forests around us. We can hear the creek below. There's lots of interesting sounds. We hear a lot of songbirds, seagulls, and sea lions, and U.S. Highway 101. <laughs> How far are you from the coast? Really close. We can see the ocean from the tops of the trees. I think we're like less than a half mile, right, from the coast? Yeah. The crow flies. How long have you been out there? The collective group of us have been living in the canopy here for the last year and a half, but each of us as individuals comes and goes. Pat's been here from day one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't actually would rather like not answer that question. Like, oh. first, or I kind of like to have it just be like, we are he- we have been here since day one. I like that. Can you tell us a little bit about yourselves? This is Applesauce. I'm in my late 20s. I'm from Shawnee Territory, quite a ways east of here. I started getting involved in 2019, <clears throat> and it's really helped me feel a connection to place here that I hadn't been able to experience just things like backpacking and rock climbing. It's like been really powerful. How about you, Pat? I'm 27 years old and I grew up on the West Coast, just got involved in forest defense in the last couple of years after just thinking a lot about 
climate change and feeling like a lot of grief about how industrial capitalism is like destroying life on earth and wanting to seek out ways to combat that directly. Hmm. So I heard you had a crazy day out there yesterday. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened? Yeah, I'm trying to think where to start. It was mid-morning and it felt like a pretty normal day at the tree village. And then um, Green Diamond Security arrived with two Humboldt County sheriffs. I was in the canopy when that happened. And when they arrived, another comrade of ours was climbing like an adjacent tree and arrested that person. And that person has since been released. But um, it was the first time that the sheriffs have come out to the village and try to arrest people like for tree sitting. So um, we've been here for a year and a half, and that's the first time that's happened. Did they arrest your comrade on the ground? Yeah, they were arrested just as they were beginning to climb. You said on your social media that some of your belongings were confiscated. Yeah, they like to do that whenever they can because it makes things harder for us. They grabbed whatever whatever gear they could find and hauled it all out of here, probably never to be seen again. It ranged from equipment that we used to people's personal personal belongings. So it can be kind of a blow when a stranger comes and takes your special items. So please give us some background on the situation there and who is Green Diamond? So we're here on Yurok territory and we're within the Shirai village, which is like one of the oldest and largest Yurok villages on the coast. But this land is being occupied by Green Diamond Resource Company. Green Diamond owns uh, about 2 million acres across the Pacific Northwest and some land in, in the Southeast actually too. They're owned by billionaires and their their plan for their across their entire ownership is to clear cut all these forests in 45 year rotations so the forest would never be able to reach maturity. The unit where we're sitting, one of many areas slated to be clear cut by Green Diamond. And has there been logging since you've been there? Yeah, all the time. <laughs> Unfortunately, I was actually in this tree where we're sitting right now last year while they were cutting all around us. It was kind of about this time of year, but they're logging all throughout this forest, not always right right where we can see and hear it. Yeah, so we live in, in two tree villages, and as you know, Chad, all the logging in, on, on private and public lands in California happens under the timber harvest plan process, right? So they can't just cut willy-nilly. It has to go through this process where there's certain areas that are approved to be cut. And so there's two adjacent timber harvest plans here in Shirai um, that are approved, and they, they can cut at any time. And we have these two tree villages that are protecting, like, we just try to like pick like the, the areas that we think are the most valuable, even though we don't think anything should be cut, but we'll like an area with bigger trees or really rad snags or like, you know, close to water courses. And um, so each village is protecting several acres, but they've been able to cut the areas around that mm-hmm. um, in both of those timber harvest plans. And they've been logging within those same timber harvest plans around us while we've been sitting. The company's never has never endangered us by falling trees close to our sits, but um, they're willing to clear cut like everything that we're not protecting. Uh, can you tell us how the tree sit started? So folks have been tree sitting out here in Shirai for almost a decade now, and um, 
a lot of locals also just hike in this area because it's like pretty accessible from town and really beautiful. And I was like out here hiking with friends and we found a chainsaw on the ground and realized that they were um, in the middle of cutting a unit where tree sitters had lived in the past. And um, we just decided to like climb the trees and see what happened. And we were able to shut down work that day. Hmm. That was the beginning of April, 2020. So it was like right when the pandemic hit and we've just been living here since then. That's a great place to shelter in place. Mm. Totally. Yeah, it's pretty COVID safe. <laughs> it's a lot more than six feet yes. between us and everyone else. <laughs> and you talk about a tree village, so there's more than one platform and more than one tree involved. Yeah, it's really cute because we we get to connect the different platforms with traverses and we can traverse across between trees and visit each other. So Pat actually came over this morning to the platform I'm living in. But even when we don't cross, we're usually within shouting distance of each other. It, it, so, it serves multiple purposes. The, the more trees that we're in, the wider swath of area the company's not able to safely fell trees. It also means that we just are able to be more resilient with more of us up here at a time, looking after each other, making sure everyone's okay and has what we need. Do you have any idea how old the trees that you're in are? Well, because they've logged the surrounding areas, we can count the rings on the trees that have been cut. and. Um, the oldest ones that we've seen cut are about 80 years old, but the trees we're sitting in are significantly bigger than the ones they were able to cut. So I would guess some of these trees are, are close to 100 years old, but it's hard to say. A, a lot of them are, I mean, this is second growth forest, but a lot of these trees I feel like are starting to develop old growth characteristics. Like the canopies are, are really heavy with lichen. Some of the trees have reiterations, which is like where the redwood trees start to grow multiple tops that are characteristic of old growth and and we see like all kinds of critters like living up in the canopy like wandering salamanders and flying squirrels nice we're we're here so that these trees can can be old growth trees yes they're like baby giants right now exactly yeah very old baby giants much older than i can comprehend but still young for, for who they are. Are they all redwoods? Do you have any Douglas fir or grand fir? Hemlock? Our friend is living in a Doug fir that's, that's connected to where we are in this village. There's also, um, there's some grand firs out here and some Sitka spruce, but not any hemlock. One of the cool things about this area is there are prickle cone pine trees, which are like a regionally endemic species. They only grow in like isolated patches up and down the West Coast. Um, and there are a number of them in this unit and in the other timber harvest plan. And that was one of the major the points that CAL FIRE and the public were really upset about when um, these plans were filed is that they were, they proposed logging of prickle cone pines. Ooh, yeah. It's down here in Jackson State. The bishop pines, as well as the hemlocks and the tan oaks, are crucial for the mycorrhizal health of the forest, which is essential for its resiliency. Mm. Mm. So how many people are involved right now up in the canopy? 
666. <laughs> wow. <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> in the middle of active logging, like, people will show up and there'll be, like, so many of us in the canopy. And then other times there's not as many of us, and it just really varies. You come and go? You go down to town occasionally? Yeah, we sort of we sort of tag team so that people can take showers and what do you think? Is that worth is that okay? <laughs> totally, yeah. Like no one's no one's stuck up here. We we are not besieged. Right. And we all lead varied and fascinating lives. On that note, we're gonna take a little musical break with a song called Dozer's Come. Pat wrote these lyrics last year when looking out, watching machinery working right next to the tree village. They recorded it on their iPhone inside the Trinidad Post Office lobby after hours because they liked the echo in there. Here we are. Dozers come. When the dozers come after agencies approve and then the contractors aside when the company moves in then we go to the front lines when the dozers come for the letters have been written but the agencies ignore the certifiers are greenwashed just an excuse to clear cut more when the dozers come we haven't many pennies, but we've hearts within our chests. And if you wanna cut this forest, I will be cutting us as well when the dozers come. That was Pat and Friends recorded after hours in the Trinidad Post Office on a phone. Dozers come. Now we'll head back to our interview. So are you your own support network, or do you have other people on the ground who are not coming up into the trees but helping you out? The network is is large and hard to pin down. There's not clear membership. Different people participate in different ways, whether it's someone bringing us vegetables from their garden or someone who helps write things or goes on grocery runs or brings us batteries to charge our phones. Sometimes it is the same people who are doing the direct action who also handle those little things. And there are many ways that people contribute and they're all really crucial and important. And it's really lovely that it can be this like diffused communal thing. Cause definitely like if it was just the sitters having to handle all that stuff, we wouldn't be able to keep this up for very long. We, we rely on a, a large community of support. Do you see yourselves as affiliated with a larger organization? I myself identify as an earth burster um, because I have like a lot of respect for work that's been done under that name. But this is technically isn't an earth first campaign. Mm-hmm. And just anyone who's here tree sitting or involved in any way is part of Redwood Forest Defense. Yes. Apples. I think we're both fans of vague more like personal affinity familial based ways of doing things so yeah there's not there's not always like a formal entity that has like membership and rules and structure we're we're doing it as a community and people are opting in in ways that feel right to them without having to answer to someone else's ideas of what they should do so how did each of you 
maybe start with applesauce, end up deciding that the uh, tree sit would be an effective course of action? Tree sitting is complex and certainly not always the way to go. I think it has a lot of it has a lot of benefits. The obvious one is we're up here, and yesterday when there were sheriffs here, they can't just grab someone from a tree and haul them away. And that's maybe the most obvious thing is that we're it's harder to remove us. Yeah, it it also enables us to have the gear we need to be living comfortably enough out here that also can't be confiscated. But I think there's also a romantic aspect to it that sometimes I have conflicted feelings about it because people get really excited to romanticize it and we are thinking very tactically but also I think the romance is cool and and it and it can get people really excited and it's a really beautiful experience to connect with the forest in this way where you know we we're being held in the air by this tree that we're here to support and it feels it feels reciprocal like we're just we're defenders we're here defending protecting but we're also pretty directly relying on this tree for support right now and they're holding us and keeping us from falling beautifully spoken thank you yeah i appreciate that it is it is a constant question in our minds of like, how can we apply ourselves to be like, what is the most effective work we can be doing? And honestly, I really like climbing. So I'm like hmm. glad that I get, that I get to be involved in something where I get to climb every day. Like, I think there's like a broad range of ways. Like, I mean, we could do all kinds of work, but let's say you like want to do forest defense. There's like so many different paths to take. Like people do direct action on the ground. Like I know so much of that has been happening in, Mendocino people do stuff in the canopy people do like litigation and advocacy work and like um, I think it makes sense for people to to plug in in whatever ways they enjoy and feel capable of because um, we're never going to find like the perfect tactic that like protects everything without any repercussions like obviously we started tree sitting here just because we were like let's just try this and see if it works and then it worked and it seems like it's still working so we're still here but we don't really I don't feel like I'm going to like live in this tree forever. I just am like grateful to be here right now. And as, and as long as it feels effective. And I have to say like yesterday I was just in the canopy, like just looking down at the cops and was like, I'm so glad that I am a hundred feet above the cops. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I, I don't want to ever be around cops, but if you have to be around cops, it's way better to like be above them and have them be tiny specks on the ground. <laughs> Not to be great. glib, you know, because I was mostly just worried about our our friend who was being detained and was trying to keep eyes on the situation to make sure they were okay. But I was feeling grateful that the trees were keeping me safe up here. I know when I climb a tree and look out, the world looks really different. And it's one thing just to be up high but it's another thing to be up there for months and months how has your perspective on the world in general changed just from being up in a tree something that's been really powerful for me is just learning what i'm capable of how i'm how i could how i can live what i really need and and especially what i don't need and it's very much 
also transformed the ways that I live on the ground. Living in like this pretty extremely simplified way when it's just like the things that I have are what can hang in this tree with me and what I can what I can haul up here and I think I've it it's helped me to filter out the superfluous things in my life and really get a better understanding of what's important to me thank you pat i'm i one thing i appreciate about living here is just even though it's unpleasant at times especially in the winter living outside in some ways is a really magical experience i really love being getting to like see the sunrise and sunset um on clear days and we get really good stars out here um it's just a really beautiful place to live and i hadn't spent time in this forest before we started tree sitting here it wasn't like a place i was really connected to and so i'm glad for the opportunity to like begin connecting to a place by defending it like it's sort of a bizarre experience to just start climbing these trees and to have my relationship with this particular landscape start in that way and then slowly develop while living in the canopy but now i feel really connected to this area and like really want to stay here because i care about it yes very much i identify with that just having been involved with the activism here, even though I've lived on the Mendocino coast for 34 years, I've in the last year and a half, I developed a very different viewpoint on this forest. Yeah, I could imagine that. I guess that's making me think of one other thing if I can, that like, well, y'all are doing forest fence on public land. So I imagine at least some people have an existing relationship with the land where they hike or bike and know these places before they're slated to be cut. And one of the weirdnesses of forest defense on private timberlands is you you have to risk arrest just to go out and see what's at stake. So I think the types of relationships we are starting to build with, with the land here are, are really strange where we're always risking arrest just to see what's under threat, let alone protect it. And I know that not everyone can do that, and I, but I'm I'm glad. I sometimes think like, we're almost playing the role of just like bearing witness like to these landscapes while the companies try to destroy them because like not everyone is able to. Yes. A lot of times they're logging in remote or inaccessible areas or just behind locked gates and fences. Um, and it's hard for most people to see what's happening. And I'm glad that I'm, I, it's like painful. And then in some ways I'm grateful that I get to be out here and like see what they're doing. But what do you see as complementary actions that you can do from your tree sit platform or that you can do maybe when you go to town? I can still recycle, ride my bicycle, and write to my congressperson. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. I don't you want to address that. <laughs> well, since there's a broader network of people who aren't 24-7 living up here, things are able to happen on the ground. When there's logging happening somewhere else where there aren't tree sets, people have gone to be in the presence of work so that work has to stop. We're always trying to make it 
really clear that anyone can take measures to protect the areas where they live, the areas that they love, and it doesn't have to be complicated. You don't have to like learn a bunch of knots and get a bunch of rope and set up a tree sit. You can be creative and and we need you to be creative because that's where we figure out what is possible and what we're capable of. I mean, tree sitting had not been thought of and then it was and it's proliferated as a tactic, but we need to all be really creative and we need to be sharing our ideas and sharing what works and what doesn't work for us. Yeah, it feels like a really different tactic than, say, going out and protesting or even locking yourself to a gate in a blockade, that you're actually going up for an indefinite time to experience a new way of living that also is a tactic because you're in the way of the timber harvest. A lot of people I know, they're never in a forest in a storm. But you're up there, you know, way up in a tree. How has it been when there's a big storm coming through? One nice thing is that we are living on the coast where the weather is actually really mild. So the winter is rainy. We live in a rainforest, but it doesn't snow here. And and so it's actually like somewhat feasible to live out here year round. It's kind of necessary because this timber harvest plan does have provisions for winter operations, which means they could come out here and cut trees any day of the year. Um, And there's restrictions around like running heavy machinery when the soil is saturated. But as far as falling trees, that could happen at any time. So we were here throughout the winter last year and you never know what the future will bring, but we'll probably continue to do that. Because we're not under siege and we can like swap out with each other and like support each other in that way, it's relatively tolerable because if you got a little wet, then your friend comes up and you can like go dry off. Mm -hmm. I grew up backpacking in the Washington forests and I really feel like you can't experience a forest that's a rainforest unless you're there when it's raining. It's a whole mm. different world. Mm. I appreciate that. But of course, I hear that being you know, a tree-sit platform in the rain is not always so comfortable. It's definitely not the most comfortable thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I've sometimes just been like, wow, I really wish I was dry. And then other times it'll be raining and like the rain will just be coming in through the tarps because there's just like not really any way to completely close it off. And I'll just feel this glee of just like, here I am in this storm, like a hundred feet in a tree. How preposterous. <laughs> and yet I'm okay. I'm like making a cup of tea and I'm just going <laughs> to keep all my books in Ziploc bags. <laughs> On that note, we are going to head over to the second grade science report for a few minutes, then head back to the tree for more of this conversation with Pat and Applesauce. Hello and welcome again to the second grade science report, the Pledge Drive edition. I'm Chad Swimmer, and this is my friend... Chipmunk. Chipmunk, how are you doing today? Good. What are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about dinosaurs and redwoods. Dinosaurs and redwoods. I don't know. What do you think? Did dinosaurs come first, or did redwoods come first? Redwoods. Redwoods? Really? Maybe. Maybe? Both. 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 They can't both have come first. I'm guessing both, so I can be right no matter what. That works. Well, you know, I I was noticing that we were looking at a lot of your books about dinosaurs, and they don't really have any pictures of redwoods, do they? No. What kind of trees do the dinosaurs usually hang out with? 
Palm trees and volcanoes. Palm trees and volcanoes. Hmm. But volcanoes aren't trees. Well, I don't know. I think. Do you think we should try to find a real paleontologist and ask him about this? Yeah. I think so too. Well, let's let's make a call and see if we can find a paleontologist. Hello, Dr. Paust. Hi, how are you? Good, good. Thanks for taking the time. So uh, we have a paleontological question for you. But first, uh, my friend Chipmunk here has some questions because he's not even sure who we're talking to. How do we know you're a real paleontologist? Am I a real paleontologist? I guess it's hard for me to prove over the radio. I have a card here that says Ashley Paust, postdoctoral fellow, Department of Paleontology. But I don't know if you can see that right now. No, I guess we'll have to just take your word for it. Have you discovered any new dinosaurs? So one of them that I named with some collaborators recently is a really cool tiny dinosaur called Wulong, which means the dancing dragon. Whoa. It's called a dancing dragon? That's cool. How big was that? About the size of a house cat. And why is it a dinosaur if it's so small? Well, dinosaurs can really be any size, right? So a dinosaur is just an animal that is closely related to birds and and a little more distantly related to crocodiles and uh, has certain figures of its shape that make it a dinosaur. So this is a little land animal with feathers that lived in China about 120 million years ago, which is, you know, a pretty long time. Hmm. Very interesting. How did you discover it? Well, I, I wasn't the one who discovered it out in the rocks. No, it had been discovered by a farmer a couple decades ago. Hmm. Do you think it was a cute dinosaur? I thought it was probably pretty cute. It had feathers all over, so that would have made it pretty fuzzy. But it was a predator. It had big claws on its feet and sharp teeth in its mouth. So I think it would have been cute in the same way that, say, something like a ringtail cat or a bobcat is cute. You know? Cute unless you're smaller than it and uh, trying to get away. <laughs> yeah. So we actually have a little black and white cat named Luna, and obviously we think she's really cute. And she catches dragonflies. And mosquito hawks, too. I bet they don't think she's cute. So we were having a little discussion here, and we're up in Northern California, and so we're always thinking about redwoods. So our question Mm. was, which came first, dinosaurs or redwoods? That's a good question. I think I'm going to have to just barely give the edge to the dinosaurs. So dinosaurs and and redwood relatives probably both evolved during the Triassic or the very early Jurassic in the case of of redwoods. Um, So that's over 200 million years ago. But the earliest dinosaurs we know of are even, you know, tens of millions of years before that um, in a period called the Triassic. And I think... Honestly, that uh, uh, even though we don't know the oldest, oldest redwood trees ever, um, it seems like dinosaurs are probably around before they were well established. See, I told you. Wait a minute. I thought you said that redwoods were first, chipmunk. Well, anyway, I definitely learned something out of this because I thought for sure that redwoods were around like 300 million years ago. What about the dinosaurs here in California? Here in California, the dinosaurs that we're used to and the, and the redwoods that we're used to have a slightly different story. California has mostly spent the time of the dinosaurs underwater. Underwater? No wonder we like surfing so much. So very little of California, um, as we know it today, 
uh, either existed at all or was above, you know, the top of the sea during that uh, the, during the time of the dinosaurs. Wow. Um, but what that means is we don't have very many records in California of redwood trees and dinosaurs together because the places that we find redwoods, we don't have dinosaurs. And in the places that we have dinosaurs, the times we have dinosaurs, uh, we're mostly looking at the ocean. Now, two clues, though. Here are two interesting clues to uh, your question about did dinosaurs and, and redwood trees overlap. My friend, Dory Contreras, is a paleobotanist at the Pro Museum, uh, which is in Texas. And she has worked in a really cool field site in New Mexico that's from the Cretaceous period, which is the last period of the big dinosaurs. And she found there a whole fossil forest, trees in place, leaves that just fall into the ground. And how that happened was they were covered over with the ashes from a big volcanic eruption. Amazing. And in those same rocks, she did find some bits of Triceratops or another big plant-eating dinosaur. So we do know that in some parts of North America, they definitely existed at the exact same place because she was finding redwood leaves all throughout that. There is one other secret place that I don't know if we've thought about yet where you might actually have the final answer to the dinosaur part of the question, though, which is Baja, California. So Americans don't often think about Baja as being part of California, but of course it is. Dinosaurs didn't know about some national boundaries. Those are just things we made up. So the very southern part of Baja, California, has some incredible rocks that preserve bits of dinosaurs, including teeth like uh, those of T-Rex. Wait, wait. T-Rexes. Nice. And they also have redwood trees. So that little bit of, of California, way down there in Mexico, actually sort of demonstrates that they both did live together at the same time. So there were T-Rexes and redwoods living in Baja, California at the same time? Yeah, pretty, pretty solid evidence from down there. So what is Baja, California? Baja, California is from Spanish. Baja means lower. Baja, California is the thousand miles of California on the other side of the Mexican border, which apparently a hundred million years ago or something like that was a place where T-Rexes ate herbivorous dinosaurs that were eating redwood trees. Kind of amazing. Anyway... Thank you so much, Ashley Paust. We are out of time. We would love to have you back again, but Chipmunk has to go off to school. Well, there you have it. Truth for the world about dinosaurs from the mouths. Don't say it. Don't say it. Don't say it. Uh, I'm not a baby, so please don't do that baby joke anymore. I'm not a baby. Okay, I respect that. I'm really sorry. No more baby jokes. All right, go put on your shoes for school. So this has been the Second Grade Science Report Pledge Drive Edition with Dr. Ashley Paust, paleontologist, postdoctoral fellow at the San Diego Museum of Natural History. Thank you, Dr. Paust, and thank you, Chipmunk. For the rest of you, please donate to support ridiculously informative shows like this by going to kzyx.org and press the red Donate Now button. It is tax deductible. Thank you.
let's head back up to the tree village in Yurok Territory near so-called Trinidad, California, Pat and Applesauce. It seems like both of you are doing a lot of the same interior reckoning that a lot of us in the environmental movement are, like what it means to be a settler or a colonized person or to shake off the mentality of colonizer or colonized. Are you comfortable talking about this? I identify as a settler not so much because it is the the role that I want to play in this world, but because it's just acknowledgement of like where I am right now. Mm-hmm. I feel like as settlers we have a really a, we have a broken relationship with the land, and that broken relationship is what Green Diamond is enacting when they when they're cutting these forests. So I feel like a certain sense of responsibility to like reckon with that relationship and figure out how to unlearn it in myself and figure out how to fight the most egregious expressions of it like this kind of industrial extraction I'm honestly not not sure like what makes sense yet I think that that practice of not knowing is really important I think it's important for us to understand that colonization hurts all of us albeit in very different ways and that it is an ongoing process that we all play roles in. Anti-colonial and decolonial efforts are just good for everybody, not even just humans. We're all so torn from the life around us. For many of us, it, it runs really deep. It can run many generations, many, many, many generations for some of us, that experience of, of of disconnection from the life around us and the life that sustains us. And there's such great potential to opening up what we think is possible for how we can be as beings and how we can be in community, not just with other humans, but with all of the life around us. I'm thinking about what you said just in regards to environmentalism, reckoning with colonization. I think something that's really important to consider is that we can carry colonial myths with us in how we might practice something like environmentalism, such as myths of, of, of wilderness of like pure land without human existence. And that's like a, that's a big manifest destiny kind of thing that runs deep in how we talk and think about land. People have lived in, very active relationships with with much of the land Mm -hmm. you know for for a long time one of my icons was john muir and so much of who i am and my my relationship to the environment comes from john muir and then i've found out things just really recently about what he wanted for yosemite valley and the indigenous people, the First Nations that lived there. And it's it's pretty disgusting. But it also reminds me that we're all, you know, flawed agents of change and we're all damaged goods. When when we think of human life as being inherently destructive and that we need to create certain zones of exclusion of human life in order to protect other life, I think that is a really dangerous way of thinking that the only way to have a a healthy forest for example is to create a 
you know, a reserve or a park or somewhere where people are not allowed to live because it takes this assumption that just being alive is destructive. And that doesn't have to be the case. I think the ways that we are taught to live, that we are often forced or coerced into living are certainly very destructive. Especially right now, I, we really need to consider that if humans are going to continue to have a place in this planet, we need to we need to be living differently in terms of how we relate to all of the life around us, not as as resources, but as community and as family. There's so many different aspects of being an active environmentalist and it's become really clear since the the shelter in place order was lifted that so many people need nature and people who did not have any connection before are coming out and that we who have been here for so long need to help these people learn to be outside and not destroy it just by their very presence people walking out and leaving diapers and leaving bags of trash because they don't know any better I have gotten angry, but I've also gone and talked to people. Oftentimes they didn't even think about it, and they've thanked me for it. We're going to have a little musical interlude and then come back and switch gears and talk about LGBTQI issues. This is a song recorded up in the trees, again, on a smartphone, called Dear Future Self, written by a longtime San Francisco Bay Area activist known as Quiver Watts, who performs as Wayfairy. Dear Future Self. first saw your Redwood Forest Defense account on Instagram, I noticed that a number of your group 
possibly all of your group identify as LGBTQI. And for me, this was really moving and very powerful when I was a younger man coming of age during the AIDS epidemic. One of my big inspirations was ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, and it informed a lot of my activism. I'm wondering how this informs your activism. I'm not an ACT UP scholar, but I can say definitively that I and my broader community draw a lot of influence from ACT UP, not always in direct ways, um, because we've been blessed with the opportunity to to learn from people who've been taking active roles in the world before us. But it feels really, really lovely to be able to exist in, in a, a continuum of queer resistance and rebellion and daring to find lives that feel right for us and to and to not hide that and to encourage others to also find those lives. It's, it's hard for me to tell since I was a baby, but there is at least a narrative and possibly a reality that like white environmentalism has been like really male dominated. But like we know like North Coast has always been like a place where there's like like strong women organizers. I'm stoked that like this particular like it, Iterate. Like this particular campaign just happens to end up being like a lot of queer people and like a lot of non-binary and trans people because I have heard many people in the movement express feeling like there is a dearth of involvement from like queer people, from trans non-binary people and women and that there is a dearth of people with those identities like doing voice skills like climbing and rigging and I'm stoked that like it's a bunch that we're out here just like doing those things ourselves. And I'm grateful for like the cis men who I've learned from and um, glad to be like in the process of skill sharing with people. And it feels really, I think it's like, you're like, Oh, like these, this certain demographic of people are always the ones who like do this particular thing. I'm excited to be in the process of changing that, not by like, demanding something from that group of people, but by like empowering ourselves to just like mm. do the thing ourselves with each other. Um, but that said, we're not, we're not like, a, like cis men are still welcome here. And it's not like you have to be like a queerdo to live here. Like everyone can come and live in the trees with us, but it ends up just being like a lot of queers a lot of the time. Amen. I have shown your posts to many people to queer friends of mine, to young transgender people, and they're so inspired to see it. I, and for mm -hmm. myself, it really meant a lot as a young person to actually see people who weren't afraid to be out. And at the time, even the, the dichotomy within the gay-straight world was very, you know, binary, gay-straight. And now it's very hard for people to understand even a lot of older queer people because they don't see how the whole gender spectrum and sexual preference spectrum relate and don't relate and have been broken down and that we can be what we want to be. And it's just really inspiring for people to have you there doing what you're doing. I, I'm excited about that. I'm just grateful to the extent that we can like try to foster a space where like queer people 
feel comfortable practicing hard skills. I feel really grateful to be in this network of people who are really taking our hmm, we have we have very expansive practices of queerness. It's just really amazing to be able to live in these ways where we're really finding out how it's possible to be people and to be people who are empowered to live the ways that we want to live and relate to each other how we want to relate to each other and do it with a lot of compassion and care and come together harmoniously and empower each other to just be ourselves together and really depend on each other and support each other in powerful ways a village here and we really are we're fi- we're finding new life ways together whether that means like what kinds of relationships w- we have with each other or what kinds of schedules we live day to day what kinds of foods we eat what kind of rituals we practice together and and I wish for that for everybody to be able to really get to play around with how we can be and who we can be and feel empowered and encouraged and supported in that. Historically, like often the only like dedicated space accessible to to queer people has been like bars. Mm. That's cool. And it's been like, I I'm, can only imagine it's been like a, a site of liberation for like a lot of people, especially with an absence of like other spaces. There's not even like a gay bar in Humboldt County. Like <laughs> it's super rural. Like maybe we are the gay bar. Like, we might be the closest thing to like a dedicated queer space. I bet um, you that there is an LGBTQIAA meeting. What kind of queer space can we envision beyond like places where we just like drink? <laughs> yes. Yeah, to be to be doing it sober is really great for those of us who who choose to live that way and to yeah, I don't have to go to a bar to find the freaks that I want to be with. So I'm curious about the social media aspect of this. It's just really different than the all the tree sits of the 1990s. How do you see that as playing into what you're doing? It's a fraught landscape. <laughs> yeah. We certainly feel conflicted about it. It is really cool to be able to write something and press a button on our phone and and know that hundreds or more people are going to read it. We didn't have to submit it somewhere and hope that they would publish it. Like we just do it ourselves. But we're also engaging with the behemoth of of capitalism in ways that aren't always the loveliest when we depend upon social media. Yeah, feel the same as applesauce that social media enables us to speak in our own words. I don't I don't have to, when I write for social media, I don't have to rephrase it like I do in a press release where I try to use neutral language about things that I feel really strongly about. But I think the way people engage with social media, the way it's designed for people to engage with it really sucks from the perspective of someone doing direct action and trying to encourage other people to do direct action because social media wants you to just like keep scrolling and see more ads and encourages voyeurism and idolatry instead of like actual profound engagement. And like a number of people who found us on social media have come here and held it down in the tree sits with us. So to me, it's worth engaging, even if only 
a few people end up coming. I'm one of those people who found out about forest defense here through social media, but then was able to expand my relationship beyond that of a voyeur who looks at my screen and is like, well, that's cool what those people are doing to being one of the people doing the things that I think are cool. The proliferation of social media, I connect it with a a sense of like disempowerment and that we are just spectators watching things go down and um, the most active <laughs> role we can play is what we like or share on social media or you can get a little you can get a step up from that I suppose and donate money and don't get me wrong the donating is cool too like how we can <laughs> how we can say on social media hey the cops came and they took our friend to jail and they took a bunch of our stuff and then immediately have people we've never met donating money so that we can replace that gear that was taken. I also hope that um, more of us can find more embodied ways of, of taking agency in the world around us. I just really encourage getting off of the phone and being a physical being in space who does things as much as you can. I just want to clarify, like, like tactically what we're doing here. Like, we're taking direct action, obviously, like our presence in these, in these particular trees is what's kept them standing for the last year. But I also feel like we're sort of doing a symbolic action when we're here. And when we talk about it, like to the media or on social media, um, in that we are, as far as I know, like the only group that's openly opposing Green Diamond blogging on the West Coast. And I like to think that we're just like a little ideological thorn in their side talking about like as loudly and as constantly as possible how destructive industrial logging is because we do we do our own media we don't have some like external like media team or anything so we're like up here in the trees like yelling back and forth being like do you think I should say this or that so I'll be up here on my smartphone like trying to send out a press release or like let people know what's going on and I know that Green Diamond and the sheriffs all have like paid staff to do those jobs and I'm like fight them in the war of ideas and like we can maybe even win with many less resources than they have <laughs> we noticed that with us that as our our two instagram accounts uh, mendocino trail stewards that mama tree mendo both were getting hundreds of followers that cal fire all of a sudden had cal fire jdsf had an instagram account with obviously people who were paid to do posts but they weren't getting very many likes those poor guys and they haven't been posting recently. How would you recommend for us who are listening to support you? Yeah, obviously the number one way that we are requesting and want to receive support is people doing this kind of stuff. Like, obviously, people in Mendocino don't necessarily need to come here because there's lots of stuff to be done in Mendocino in these same realms. But, like, people are always welcome to contact us if they want to come here, whether it is to come and hold space here or come practice skills to bring back to where they live. People can email us at our email is info at redwoodforestdefense.org. We're on Instagram at Redwood Forest Defense. That's also our Venmo if people want to donate money. Please do. I'm going to say this now because I think all the trolls that might have been listening at the start were scared away by all the queer talk. But 
The fact is, is that these people are not able to earn money while they're up in the trees. So essentially, we should be paying them to help defend these trees and to help be the kind of people that we want to see on our Instagram feed. So please donate. Thanks. There's my pitch. But also, plugging in with people close to you who are doing the kind of activism that you're interested in. And if you don't know of those people, just take a take a swing at at it and try something out the direct action ma- manual the earth first direct action manual is by no means everything but it has some it has some ideas for people who are taking a swing at it do you know if you can get that on amazon.com <laughs> i think you can get it on amazon.com <laughs> but if you Search it in Google, or better yet, DuckDuckGo. <laughs> if you search direct action manual, I think it should come up. It's like a published book you can buy. There should be some PDFs of it available. That too. I have one last question before we wrap it up. I imagine you have a lot of time for reading. So what books are you reading right now? I just started reading this book called um, In the Land of the Grasshopper Song, which is about... Um, two women who are hired by the Bureau of Indian Affairs to live on the Klamath River for a year and Christianize Karuk people there. And it's a really intense and really fascinating book written by the women themselves who, though it never says this in the book, it seems very clear that they are a closeted lesbian couple. Hmm. And their descriptions of of Karuk social life on the Klamath after um, kind of like the mining boom um, it's fascinating, but I've just started reading it. Thank you. I've really enjoyed reading this book called Two People's One Place. That's a history book about the humble area. It covers a lot about the process of colonization. It, I think it ends, like it only gets to somewhere around 1900 and waiting for the next the next book in the series but I, I really recommend that book to people living in the humble area. I think looking at history that is grappling with colonization is extremely important for anybody. Well, thank you both very much for giving us the time. It's really been an inspiring and thought-provoking conversation. Thank you so much for having us on. It's You're... a privilege to talk with you. That was Pat and Applesauce speaking to you through the invisible but carbon-intensive magic of the Internet. This is Chad Swimmer. You've been listening to Disquiet on the Western Front, Voices from the Forest Resistance, Conversations to Cool a Planet on Fire. And the dozers come after agencies approve, and then the contractors aside when the company moves in. Then we go to the front lines when the dozers come. For the letters have been written, but the agencies ignore the certifiers. Our greenwash just an excuse to clear cut more when the dozers come. And we haven't many pennies, but we've hard to thin our chests. And if you wanna cut this force, that'll be cutting us as well when the doors come.
On that note, I would like to remind everybody to support your local public radio station, whether it's a pledge drive or not a pledge drive. This is a pillar of democracy and a pillar of the artistic soul of our nation. KZYX.org. Donate now. Thank you. Bye.